On this episode of Neighborhood Preppers, Holistic and EMP Prepping with Dr. Arthur Bradley, coming up next. Welcome, everyone. I'm Alton James, and I'm joined by the man himself, Mr. Bobby Riggs Jr. This is Neighborhood Preppers, and we have a special guest today, Dr. Arthur Bradley. Welcome, gentlemen. How's it going, Alton? I'm well. How's it going? Great. Dr. Bradley, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and joining us. Um, we are like a kid in a candy shop right now. All the research we've done, and and I know Elton's bought a lot of your products, and, and my cart is overfilled. My wife is really nervous about me hitting send. Um, but, you know, we're just super excited, and, you know, everybody, on by behalf of everybody here at the Neighborhood Preppers, I just want to say thank you for taking time out and, and you know, just loading us with the information that I know we're going to get from you. All right, sure. Thanks for having me on. So why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself to everybody and just give them a little bit of your background. Okay. So um, I'm Arthur Bradley. Um, I work for NASA during the day. I'm a branch head there of an electronic systems branch. So we build mostly satellites uh, that we send up into space, but we do some things for space station as well. Um, in my off hours, I'm usually writing books of one sort or another. So I've written a Handbook to Practical Disaster Preparedness for the Family. It's my first prepper book, if you will. Um, and that was pretty popular. It's a pretty exhaustive book. It's almost 500 pages of information. And then I wrote a couple of other. I wrote a book on EMP preparedness, and I wrote a long-running survivalist series, which was a fictional story set sort of after a, uh, an enormous pandemic hit the world. So sort of writer by night and uh, engineer by day. So you're, so you're a busy, busy guy. guy. I'm a busy guy. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, I want to ask uh, everybody, all of our listeners know, I got started into prepping on accident. I watched the TV show. My wife was pregnant with our son, and it really was just a bad dream that led to me saying, what can I do to protect my family going forward? And it started with a get home safe bag. That was the first thing I did as, as a prepper. Um, I didn't know that I was a prepper and then it was, okay, I want to make sure I got food in the pantry for my family. What was the thing that really was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm a prepper. What was it for you? Yeah, no, then a lot of times there are sort of important moments like that. Um, mine was actually the nine 11 attacks. Um, I remember now I grew up in a family, my dad's a Marine and, you know, we were always as kids studying blast maps of the United States, you know, where the bombs were going to hit. I mean, we, we were in that circle, but I wasn't really into preparedness per se until the 9-11 attacks. And I remember being at work that day and, you know, watching them hit the towers and the time. And, and there was just this weird sense of not knowing what it meant. You know, how did it affect me, my family? We weren't sure. Do we go home? What, what, what's happening here? Right. And it, anyway, it made me think, we're not really prepared for anything, right? And, you know, like most people, we're just sort of have a little bit of food around and we're just kind of reliant that everything's going to work. And so I started by doing a whole bunch of research like an engineer would, right? I mean, I read every book there was out there and sort of collected all my notes. And I thought, well, 
I've learned a lot of things and I've tried to put them in practice. Some things I agreed with, some I didn't agree with. And so that's what led me to write that handbook. And that was my first sort of really my, documenting my own findings, what I thought was important. Um, and it, that just kind of led me into this world a little bit. And I started connecting with people. Um, and, you know, I saw the importance of not just preparing my family, but trying to help others get better prepared too. Yeah, definitely. I bet you 9-11 was a huge day for a lot of preppers, you know, that just, especially anybody that lived in New York or just a major city at all. Um, I couldn't imagine living in New York or, you know, LA or something and just seeing that happen. I know um, I was 19 at the time. And, you know, that's one of those days that everybody remembers, nobody forgets. And I mean, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Um, Elton, I know you're just itching. <laughs> you you are so ready. So um, Dr. Bradley, is his website is disasterprepare.com. You can follow him on YouTube at Disaster Prepper. 13,000 subscribers. That's awesome. A lot of people like to hear what you have to say. So um, I know uh, Elton's got a whole bunch of questions. He's uh, our electronic guy. So go ahead and, and pepper him away. Sounds good. Sounds good. So again, just full disclosure, one of my biggest uh, things that I like to prepare against the idea of a, of a coronal mass ejection happening, a solar storm, things of that nature, any type of EMP that would really debilitate our infrastructure. And one of the things that you talk about in your book uh, you, you talk about the three kind of pieces. You got the nuclear, the geomagnetic storm, and the CMEs, the coronal mass ejections. And I guess one of my biggest fears, I think about, okay, an event happens and there could be kind of a second hit from a geomagnetic storm. What what are your ideas or what are what things you think we should do, you know, if an event happened, you know, when do you pull the stuff out of your Faraday bags and say, hey, okay, maybe we're at a good time window where we don't have to worry about getting hit again and frying the stuff that we're taking out? Yeah, I've, I've been asked that question, especially not so much about the sun. You know, the, the threats from the sun are different than the threats from a nuclear EMP. And you, you know this, Alton, I'm sure, but just in case your listeners don't. So the threat from a nuclear EMP is actually much more significant than that of from the sun. The sun would generate basically a giant corona that would come over the earth that would cause these currents to flow around the earth, which would essentially introduce very high voltages on our power lines and any long conductor. And that would go into homes and businesses and it would zap everything or many things would be damaged that were plugged up to the grid, right? But what it wouldn't do is it wouldn't affect freestanding small electronics like cars or cell phones or things like things that are just too small for that low frequency energy to get into. So while it would be terrible, you know, if it took down the grid and it damaged a bunch of electronics all over the world, it's not exactly the same threat. The, the EMP from a nuclear high altitude nuclear detonation would have that same effect on the, the grid. It would have, you know, all this energy introduced on the grid, but it would also couple high frequency energy into small electronics like your cell phone or your car or other things like that. And so it's more encompassing and more dangerous in a sense than the sun. Now, the good news is an EMP might or might not ever happen in terms of a nuclear EMP, right? It's, it's a weapon, right? It's a weapon of war. We can do it. The United States can do an EMP. We've tested them. Russia can do it. China can do it. Others believe they can do it. So it is a weapon that could be used, but it hasn't been used before. So it's not a certainty, right? But the sun and the coronal mass ejection is a certainty. It is going to happen. We're going to have another 
thrown a mass ejection, come over the earth like the Carrington event or something similar that will damage the grid and will damage electronics. It's just a certainty. Um, now, when it happens, who knows? Could be tomorrow, could be 10 years from now, could be 50 years from now. We're a little past due for it, frankly. Um, they happen about every 150 years or something like that, and we're, we're due for it. Um, and there's a lot of talk about trying to protect the grid. That's the most important thing, right? It's sort of the lifeblood for all of our systems, right? If you take out the grid, everything, you can go down all of our infrastructures, and one by one, they start to fall very quickly. Hospitals, food distribution, and on and on and on it goes, government, so forth. So you got to keep the grid up and going. And there's been a lot of talk and there's been some effort recently and whether you like the administration or you don't, there has been some focus on the EMP preparedness. And maybe there's been enough attention where they're starting to put in some protective measures. It's going to take years to do that. But that's where you start for an EMP preparedness really is you have to start at a national level. You have to protect that grid, right? And by doing that, it helps to start protecting other infrastructures. Now, individuals have their own issues, right? It, depending on which EMP it is, solar or nuclear, um, you certainly have to worry about the power coming into your home. That's going to be you know, huge spikes on those lines. And I've recommended, um, it, just to be specific, that people put a very high-quality surge protector on their home. It's not very expensive, a couple hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. um, the one I recommend is the Siemens FS140. I don't sell them. I don't get anything by recommending them. I'm no Siemens shareholder. It's just a very good product. And it's the one I have on my home. Um, like I said, it costs 179 bucks on Amazon or something like that. Okay. Siemens FS140. And that's where you start. That would give you some surge protection, very good quality surge protection at your home. Anything comes in on the power lines, nearby lightning strikes, a power brownout or, or an EMP, it helps to suppress that. You can also add... Um, some whole house ferrites at the power box, right? At the actual panel. Those I do sell, so take that in, in the light accordingly. Um, but you can put these custom ferrites, one around each of the power wires, line one, line two, neutral. If there's a separate ground, you can put around that. And those also help to suppress very high frequency transients. So that's what I have on my home. I have a Siemens surge protector and I have those ferrites on my wires. And the ferrites are a product that we can get from your disasterpreparer.com. And, and I have them in my cart and I'm ready to order. Thanks to Elton James. Uh, he, he pointed me in that direction. So this is definitely something I'm excited to order. So I didn't want to cut you off, but I just wanted to let everybody know that those are something you can get directly from that website we talked about. Yep. Yep. They're on there. And, and again, I'm not here to pitch them or to sell them, but I will say this. If you just go out and buy ferrites, it's really important to understand that ferrites basically are just a, a magnetic ferrous material that will dampen current surges on the wire. That's what they do. They essentially take those current surges and they, they try and suppress them. Um, but the problem is if you put too much regular current, like just what's feeding your house, right, your lights and your washer and stuff, they'll saturate the ferrites and the ferrites won't work anymore to suppress the surges anymore. All right. So if you just go out and buy a ferrite and clamp it around, you're like, yeah, that fits. That's beautiful. It probably won't really do anything for you because the current that's just going into your house normally will saturate the ferrite. Okay. So the ones that I sell are specially modified. Basically you have to introduce a very, very small, well-controlled gap in the ferrite so that it doesn't saturate from the normal currents. And I have a video I talk about how you do that, why you do that. I won't go into all that today. We'll link, we'll link to those. We'll link yeah. to those. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting thing, especially if you're just into that stuff, you're a techie guy. Um, but that's where you start at. You put something at the home as the power comes in, 
And then the other things people look to do is they look to protect some critical electronics they might have, right? And everybody's house is different. Um, so it depends on what you're interested. Some people take a spare laptop and they store it in maybe a Faraday bag, right? Something like that. They know I've got, you know, 50 books on here. I've got all this information, all my uh, social security card, everything's copied in here. Uh, and so they try and save information in these Faraday bags, or maybe they have a medical device they just can't do without or, or whatever the products are, right? Some people protect their optical devices on their, the electro-optical devices on their rifles, for example. I keep mine wrapped up in a piece of conductive cloth just because I don't want to lose my optics. If the world goes really bad, I'm going to be glad I have a rifle I'm familiar right. with, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, 20 bucks, I'll take that, I'll take that extra precaution and have it. Um, so there's a lot of ways to protect individual electronics, but it all usually comes down to wrapping them up in something conductive. And if you're cheap, aluminum foil works fantastic, okay? So if you don't want to go buy Faraday bags, you don't have to. Just put it in a box or an ordinary bag and wrap that thing up with aluminum foil, tape it up good, and it'll be fine, all right? And that's kind of where it all starts at. Awesome. And I, I know uh, Elton's got, <laughs> he's the tinfoil man there. He's got everything wrapped in tinfoil and, and copper wire and he's he's building them all the time and and he actually was kind enough to hand me over a faraday bag and you know i stored an extra laptop with some usbs and me and him exchanged some usb information and and it really is because this wasn't really something that i felt was one of my strengths and that's why meeting out was you know so big for me as a prepper and and just as you know our neighborhood that we've talked about over and over again is is, is really there's everybody has information that you can learn from, you know, and, and obviously that, that was why we wanted you on because there's so much that both of us and, and everybody can learn from you and your experience. And it's just so cool to see, you know, how I just started off with nothing. Like I, I had no clue that was never, and, and you just brought up wrapping your optics for your rifle. And, and I just told you that I feel defense is one of my strengths. And that is something that I, a precaution that I have not taken. And now that you said it, immediately after this uh meeting i will be wrapping my my optics and and that's just great alton you got any other questions yeah you know i, I really want to dig back into what you were talking about the protection at the load center so obviously i've, I've purchased the, the ferrites that you offer and i have those on my load center box i do have a surge protection device on my load center um it's it's not the one you suggested um it's an intermatic ig series surge protection device but one of the things that I've been looking at, I've been showing Bobby a lot, there are, I'm not going to name any names, but there are different products that talk about being able to protect against an E1, an E2, or an E3, the different frequency bands of, of an EMP. And what are, what are your ideas on the surge protection devices that we typically find commercially and their ability to protect against those different series of EMPs? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. So let me say right off the bat, too, about that Siemens product. There are many other good quality surge protectors, okay? Right. So your Intermatic one, I'm sure, is a beautiful surge protector, and there are many of them out there. So don't anybody think that if you already have one on your home, oh, I got to swap that out with that. No, you know, if you got a good surge protector, you're, you're good. They all have, I, I bought about, I guess, about 15 different surge protectors when I was doing research into this. Okay. And I took all of them apart, you know, took out all the circuit boards and looked at all the components. They're all exactly the same. All right. I mean, the components are everything is the exact. They're just a bunch of essentially um, protective devices that turn on when uh, metal oxide varistors is what they're called. They turn on when you get too high a voltage and they shunt the energy away. Now, 
Some of them have more of those varistors or bigger varistors, right? And that makes them where they can take more current before they go blow up. Um, and some of them have less. Some of them don't protect all of the lines. They only protect maybe line one to line two, but not from line one to neutral. You know, there's different sort of ways people cut corners. Uh, and I have a video, I think, where I talk about all that, but you can look at the specs. Any UL approved um, surge protection device has to have the same specs on the side of it. And I only recommend UL products in terms of putting one on your home, because the reason for that is if something happened and it caught fire, let's say you had a nearby lightning strike and it catches fire, it happens. You don't want your insurance company coming in going, hmm, you put on a product that wasn't UL listed that we're not going to be able to insure your home, right? You want everything to be legit and above board. Um, and so I always just say, whatever one you get, get one that's UL listed, somebody who spent the $100,000 to get it listed. And then, uh, and then pick one that has the ratings that you like, right, in terms of a product like that. And there are a whole bunch of good ones. Like I said, they all have those different baristers in them, um, some more than others. Um, I may have lost track. What was the, the specific question on the, the load box question? Uh, no, you're, you're perfectly fine. But, you know, there are certain products that, you know, talk about being able to protect against the different bands. Uh, I got you. Yep. Yeah, E1, E2, E3 thing. Sorry, I lost track on my, my no thing. No yeah, so an EMP in general, it's never as simple, by the way, as the books show. You know, they show the big spike, which is E1. It's very brief in time. And then there's a wider spike. And then there's a really wide spike. And, and they're lower as they go, right? So E3 is very wide, but very low. And the order of magnitude is nanoseconds for E1, microseconds for E2, and milliseconds or seconds for E3, right? And then the peaks get much smaller. The first one might be 10,000 volts. Maybe it drops to a couple thousand volts. Maybe it drops to 600 volts. So you have to think about, well, how do I protect against all three of those things? And it ends up that this surge protector, yours, Aromatic, or, or mine, the Siemens, they all kind of do the same thing. They, when that first peak comes in, those, those metal oxide varistors turn on, and they try and shunt that energy away. They don't want the voltage to go above what it's allowed. It might be a few hundred volts. And as long as the pulse is very, very small in time, it'll shunt it away just fine. That's what they're built for. Um, now, there's two problems with that. The first one is these pulses from an E1 are really, really fast, right? They might rise in three nanoseconds. And a varistor generally takes about 15 nanoseconds to turn on. Mm. Now, it doesn't matter who you talk to, which varistor they're using. They're all about that speed, okay? Maybe one of them's 12, one of them's 18, but they're in the ballpark of 15 nanoseconds. So now lots of people will claim, well, mine will turn on in less than one nanosecond. Okay, but only if you're in the laboratory and only if you hook right up to it and you energize it just right, not in a realistic scenario, in my opinion, right? So the question is, how do you get a device that's going to turn on in 15 nanoseconds to protect a pulse that went up in three nanoseconds, right? And that's really where those ferrites come in. Those ferrites essentially take that pulse and they spread it out a little bit in time. They don't spread it much, right? If they can keep it instead of going up in three nanoseconds to take 10 nanoseconds to go up, your varistor now has time to start turning on and start pulling that energy up. That's the idea of combining the two. So E1 is addressed really with the ferrites combined with the surge protector. E2 is right in the sweet spot of surge protectors. The microsecond range, that's exactly where surge protectors are meant to operate. And they'll take that energy and shun it away, no problem. So that leaves you with E3. Now, E3 is, is a more difficult problem for anyone to solve. Um, and that's because it may only elevate your voltage on your lines to, let's say, 500 volts. <clears throat> but it stays there for a long time. 
let, let's say five seconds, right? Now, if you apply 500 volts to your home for five seconds, you're going to damage a lot of stuff, right? There's just, your products aren't meant to take that kind of voltage. And, and so what happens is there's a couple things that may happen. One is your surge protector, it will turn on, all right? And once E1 comes in and E2 comes in, it's on, baby. It's trying to take that energy. And the time is so great, the surge protector cannot survive it, all right? It just won't. It won't be able. And so it will try and pull in, let's say, in the case of the Siemens, it'll pull in over 100,000 amps, just wow. a huge slug of current, right? Yours will try to do very similar. One of two things will happen. Either, if you're lucky, it'll pull your breaker on your house. That would be great. That's what you want. You want to disconnect the home from the problem, right? If you're unlucky, it will just explode the surge protector and damage all the MOVs and the current and the current will just come on in the house. And there's really no way to guarantee which of those two is going to happen. All right. Um, the bigger your surge protector in terms of its rating of max current, the more likely it is it'll pull that breaker. And I did some testing um, with the Siemens one. I was looking at developing my own surge protector at one time and I wondered, well, how hard is it to pull a 200 amp home breaker, right? And it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to pull a home breaker. Um, you have to pull at least, let's say, 20 times the rated current to have any chance of pulling it quickly. Wow. And so let's say 20 times 200 amps, you know, you're talking about 4,000 amps or something like that, right? It's a lot of current. And even then, you may or may not pull it before the MOVs go. There's no guarantee. But that's the idea is you pull 50,000, 100,000 amps pop the breaker, and you're, you're at least isolated from the problem. You may still damage the surge protector, but your home as a whole has been disconnected from it. And that's kind of the, the idea of protecting a home like that. That's great. And, and is there any additional things that you would need, uh, like Elton, where you have, um, you know, you have the solar panels and you have extra stuff? You know, I know he's, he's talked and looked into it, and we're looking currently into getting possible solar panels on our house and stuff. Is there any additional stuff to protect what's on top of your roof from the damage? Yeah, so solar is a whole separate case. Um, and I did a video, people can watch that video and see if they can. It depends, you know, if you have micro inverters or you have a centralized inverter, but the idea is kind of the same. You have solar panels with a long run, power run, comes down into, let's say, a centralized inverter system, right? And then that essentially converts it to your, to your house power. Um, those long runs between the solar panel and the inverter is essentially the most likely where the energies get it into. The longer the conductor, the more likely there's a couple energy. And so what I recommend for people is that they put ferrites at each end of those solar runs at the two, you know, from your panels, from your PV panels, down to your microinverter, I'm um, down to your inverter, you put ferrites around each a bundle. Now you don't need my special ferrites, special high saturation ferrites. You can use regular broadband ferrites and they're cheaper for sure. And you can essentially just lump one around uh, one end and one around the other end. And that will try and suppress the energy that gets coupled on those lines. So that's, that's an easy way to try and help your, your system survive. Uh, most solar at least the ones I've dealt with. We did a research uh, a summer or two ago with students where we took a solar panel and we injected a bunch of energy into it and tried to suppress it and all this. Um, and the, the one that we bought already had three built-in surge protectors um, nice. by Midnight Solar, with these little module looking ones that go on it. And so my, my thinking is that many solar systems already have built-in or can easily get built-in surge protectors right around that, that inverter unit. 
it's those long cable wires that are usually left unprotected and that's where you'd want to put your ferrites on that makes sense yeah um yeah so uh one of the things that i think about so first of all the solar should should you faraday cage the actual inverter itself because i know on mine mine is grid tied so i i think a lot of people may have grid tied systems uh, it does have electronics in it because there is a panel where you can look at the settings and all those type of things. Should that unit itself be Faraday cage while it's even though it's, you know, anchored into the brick outside the house? Yeah, it wouldn't do you any good to do that, really, um, right. because it's an interesting experiment. If you take a if you take a Faraday cage, right, and you put something inside that measures the signal level and then you put an antenna outside, and you, you well, yeah, it's very, very small inside the Faraday cage blocks most of it. And then you drill a hole in the side of the Faraday cage. Surprisingly, it doesn't really change much at all. The, the level inside is teeny tiny still. And then you take a wire and you stick it through that hole, right? Maybe you live a foot out of the wire out and you put six inches inside. And all of a sudden, the signal inside the box is much, much worse than it was before you put that wire in there. Mm. And so what happens is, in the case of the inverter, you've got these wires coming from all kinds of places, right? So it wouldn't matter if you put a beautiful Faraday cage around it with those wires coming out, the energy's coming right in on the wires anyway. So hence the need to have surge protectors on, you know, each of the output powers and the ferrites on those input PV feeds. So That's great. I got a question for you real quick. And uh, this is a lot. I'm, I'm going at a much lower level because, uh, again, I'm not as techie and, and – uh, but this is a question that I get a lot when I when I talk to people and I bring up, you know, the EMPs and the Faraday and all that stuff. I always get the question is, you know, I tell people, you know, you may want to get an extra cell phone that you can put in your Faraday or a computer. And they always say, well, if the grid goes down, then am I going to lo lose service on my phone even if my phone works? Or if I have my computer, I'm going to lose service on my internet, so what good does it become? What do you have to say to people who just say, why am I going to store and try to protect my electronics when the things that are going to power those to use them the way I want no longer work? Sure. No, that's a very fair question. I get asked that a lot. Um, so the first thing I tell people is that's not the only things to store. Like in my Faraday cages, I store a radiation meter, a Geiger counter, right? Because if somebody's detonating nuclear warheads overhead, there's no telling what else is being detonated, right? I store like a digital multimeter where if I have to fix something, I have at least something that's working. So there's a lot of things you can store. But the question about the information is a good one. Like why store a cell phone when there's not going to be any cell service? Or why store a laptop when I can't get to my Wi-Fi, right? The cell phone is a good sort of extreme example. Yes, it is quite true. If an EMP goes off, it's very likely going to take down the cell towers and the cell grid as a network as a whole. But it doesn't mean that it's going to stay down for a long period of time. We're a very resilient country, right? And the grid may come down, but it may go back up 16 hours later for 30 minutes. And then it may come back down for two days and it may go up for three more days. Things could come and go on any of these services and having the ability, maybe not most of the time, but even some of the time to be able to gain access to that information or, or get information out to others is, is what's important, right? Now, your laptop, of course, is also a universal storage device. You can have tons and tons of information that you can get to. Um, but yeah, it's a fair question. You know, a lot of people ask that about the home. Why do I want to protect my home? The grid's going to be down. I'm going to be able to do anything. Well, again, the grid could be up and down. But what about having the ability to roll out that generator? What about having the ability to let that solar panels kick on? Maybe you can't operate 24 hours a day, but you can operate some. And having a little bit of power is a whole lot better than having no power, right? 
And so that's kind of the idea is you put in these, these steps to try and help you live a better life if things go south. And I think really, you know, when people start talking about the, the prepper mentality and everything, uh, and, and me and Elton talk about this a lot is everybody always has like the doomsday apocalypse. Like, you know, you're that's all you're prepping for is the apocalypse. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, modern day television with your walking dead and stuff. They see like, it was like the initial strike and then you never recover for years at a time. And I love that you say, you know, we are a resilient nation and we're just a resilient world with the technology and the knowledge that we have. So, so even if something like an EMP or something happens, it, it could be short-term, it could be long-term, but there are going to be perks where it comes back up and down and just having, you know, to be able to use that cell phone or get that knowledge and stuff. That's great because I think a lot of people, um, you know, they go, okay, an EMP hit, that's the end of the world. And now we're, you know, we got to start farming and we got to, you know, start killing zombies. And, and that's not reality. And, and unfortunately, you know, unfortunately that that's probably a reason there's a lot of people that are preppers is because they saw shows like, you know, The Walking Dead and stuff. So I, I love that answer. And I think that's great. Elton. Yeah, I think it's I think it's awesome. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned, you talked about the grid and really thinking about the resiliency of our grid. So what is the likelihood that our grid gets hit? Let's say you're, you're looking at the ideal prepper whose home has the ferrites. They have a surge protection device. What are the chances that even though there is a large spike from the grid, that the grid will continue to uh, uh, provide power after after an after event? an EMP? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what the likelihood is, but I, my gut feeling is it would probably take down most of the grid. Um, we're it's the grid is extremely complicated by the way. It, it's not like we have a national grid, right? right? There's all these, there's five different structures to it. Texas has its own interconnect. I mean, it's a very, and then each one's got all these independent entities that run it. So it's this conglomeration of complexity and, but there, there's a lot of interconnection between them and a lot of dependency. And there's been a number of analyses done. You know, we had an EMP commission look at the vulnerability and they concluded the grid was quite vulnerable. Um, and, and a lot of that stems from these large transformers. I'm sure you read about that. They, and I wondered, well, how big are these transformers? They're like the size of houses. Okay, They're big transformers. Okay, And these transformers, which all transformers do is change from one voltage to another voltage. Right. So let's say they go from a really high voltage to a lower voltage. Um, if you destroy those transformers with some large currents that flow into them, as you can imagine, they're very difficult to change out, right? And the idea, at least in the analysis, was that if you damaged enough of these transformers, you couldn't bring back up very many pieces of the grid. Maybe small pieces could come up, but a lot of it would remain down. And those transformers are not made in the United States. And I don't think there are spares in the United States either. And I can't say there are none, That's but there are almost none. Yeah. And so they're built overseas. And the question would be, how many could we get? They take a long time to build. Would we be a priority? Well, it depends on who was affected by the EMP, right? Who our enemies were. And so um, the, I, there's been projections that we could be without power for a few months, six months, a year. Who knows? I'm not really sure anybody knows that. But I do think that it's a fair assessment that the grid is quite vulnerable to either a solar event or to a nuclear EMP. I think that's a fair assessment. If we did have a solar flare or a solar EMP, and let's say it did strike, you know, a, a country like the United States, 
Would other countries see that as a weakness for us? Would that, you know, give them an opportunity to further attack us while we were down? How how would the, you know, the nation and the military and stuff be able to respond to, a, you know, a natural disaster like that? You know, would it cripple them? I'm sure they have technology we can't even imagine. Yeah, and a lot of the military electronics and hardware um, have been tested to some pretty high levels of electromagnetic pulse. There's a there was a place called the Trestle. If you don't if you haven't heard it before, you can Google it. Um, and it was basically this giant wooden structure, huge. I forget what state it's in Arizona or somewhere. I'm probably wrong. Enough, but it's this huge wooden structure. I mean, enormous, where they could park aircraft on it. And they, uh, they would actually do EMPs on military hardware, genuine EMPs, wow. and see what kind of uh, damage was done, right? And they made a lot of improvements to stuff. Now, the trestle's not operational anymore because they found out that with our modern computers, we can simulate a lot of that stuff, and it's much cheaper, as you can imagine, than, than doing it with hardware. Um, but I think the military is fairly knowledgeable about EMPs, and I think their electronics are fairly robust to it. Not to say you couldn't take some out, but I just don't think it's as nearly as vulnerable as commercial stuff. So I suspect the military would continue to function, but as you've seen, even just from this coronavirus thing, our nation is not really well prepared for any major thing, right? I mean, I hate to say I'm a, I'm a patriot yeah, all through and through, me too, too. I agree. but I look around and I'm thinking we're not doing so great with what I would think is not that terrible of a situation we should be able to handle, right? You detonate a couple of nu nuclear MPs of the United States and you got 330 million people running around going, what's going on? We're, I don't think we're going to handle it well. No. I, and I do. I think the civilians are going to be the the biggest fear that we would have more so than what is actually going on around us. I, I definitely think the civilians. 300 would... million of those people are going to go EM what? You know, and they're not going to know what they're talking about. Things just stop working. They broke my phone. You know, I mean, <laughs> it will just be confusion and chaos. And I think I much can't of get our on military, Facebook. I can't get on Facebook. <laughs> Uh, most of our country would just try and be trying to keep the peace and keep people fed is my, my thinking on it. I, and whether we'd be weak to an outside entity. Oh yeah, I think absolutely we would. Now, would we still possess nuclear weapons? Yeah, we would. So people have to weigh accordingly what would happen, right. but it doesn't mean that influence couldn't happen. Doesn't mean that people could come help us and decide not to leave. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in those situations, right? right? Scary. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, so I know very popular EMP book, One Second After, and you, you're writing, you got your survivalist books and everything, and they tell great stories. It, it's an awesome, but it is fiction. In, in, your, in your personal professional opinion, if we did have an EMP, whether it was by an attack or by the sun, what do you think the world would look like 24, 48, and of course, 72 in a week, you know, I mean, how fast are we talking about the trucks stopping? How fast are we talking about just total chaos? And and we all love reading the fictional books, especially us preppers, but in your professional opinion, you know, what's real? Yeah, it's hard to know that very well. Um, the grid, again, is the, the ultimate decider of that, right? If the grid went down immediately, which it likely would, um, it would depend on how long it stayed down. If you couldn't bring it back up, let's say for three weeks, for whatever reason, you had no real electricity in the United States for three weeks, very quickly, within days, certainly, almost all of the infrastructures would fail around us. Grocery stores would quickly, you couldn't buy anything, right? Because there's no electrical way to do your cards and nobody keeps cash hardly anymore. And even if you did, they can't do transactions. And 
everything would very quickly start unraveling on you. Hospitals would, yeah, they kick in their generators, but they might only have three days of fuel for generators and you can't truck those because you can't harvest. You know. So very quickly in days, there'd be a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion and there'd be have to be national guards in the street and things like that. Um, even because let's face it, we saw with this coronavirus, people are terribly prepared, right? They, if I can't get, I turn on my tap and water's not running because the, the pumps have all been damaged, people would be dead soon, right? They have no right. water stored. They have no way of filtering anything. No toilet so, paper. No toilet paper of all the things, right? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I'm not a doomsayer. I'm just not right. because I, people I are that. clever and people are, you know, they can pull themselves up if they need to, right? We've seen it. People do it. But there are also a lot of people who are very dependent right now. They just grew up that way. They're like, well, I, you know, the government's going to take care of me. And, and most of the time they're right. You know, there's a lot of safety nets. But when all those safety nets get pulled out at one time, I think it would be really chaotic. I think there'd be a lot of chaos pretty quickly. Um, and, and I don't know what it would look like. I'm not sure the books are too far off in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I think communities would band together, right? We saw that like during Hurricane Katrina, right? People, right. you know, they said, hey, there's 40 of us and there's, yeah, there's some bad guys around, but there's 40 of us, right? Why don't we 40 of us stick together, right? And they could keep away that kind of trouble. And I suspect in an EMP, we, people could do that. Communities could get together, even if it's a local block of people and say, hey, you know, you're an ER doc. Like one of my neighbors was an ER doc and another guy's a police officer and this, and everybody kind of draw their skills together and decide how they're going to, you know, keep themselves safe. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we would manage through it, but I also think there'd be a lot of suffering and uh, a lot of violence and a lot of chaos to it too. And of course the hospitals, losing the hospitals would be a big thing for all of those that, you know, require a ventilator and of course life support and stuff. And we had, you know, we had uh, famously in Michigan back in the early 2000s, we had the big power outage. Uh, we lost power for, what was it, Elton? Five, we were four out days, four, four days or five ago. days, yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, it, I mean, there was no power in most of Michigan for four or five days. And the Midwest. Looking, yeah, the, the whole Midwest was out. And uh, looking back on it, it was one of the best times of my life. You know, the neighbors came out. Everybody was friendly. You know, everybody was, you know hanging out in their driveways. We met more of our neighbors during those four or five days than we had met in the whole time that we had lived there. And, um, you know, there's there's been a lot of things here in Michigan. Obviously, you know, famously, we have the Flint water situation that is somehow still going on. And, you know, me and Elton talk all the time about how important it is to be able to get water, which led him to having one of the most sophisticated water systems that, you know, I know. Uh, he, he, filters his own rainwater. He's got lots of it and he does it very professionally. Um, but what I, what I love that you said is, you know, during scary times, it could, it's either going to bring out the best in people or the worst in people. And, and we saw it to an extent right now with the coronavirus pandemic. And, and even now with the protests and the riots that are going on, um, it is bringing out the best in some and the worst in some. And, and that is something that me and Elton really, you know, we are trying to build, we are trying to build a neighborhood mentality so that people do know that they can trust, you know, they, they can trust in mankind. And I'm sure you're on all the prepper pages and stuff. And, and it's so sad to see how many people are just so quick to slam the door, you know, like 
I spent years prepping and, and I'm just, I'm not here to help anybody else. They should have prepped. And that's like, I mean, that's terrifying. That's, that's scary. And, and when I prep, I always try to prep for not only just myself, but for my family, my immediate family, my parents, my sister, my friends, and of course now my neighbors. Um, what approach do you take when it comes to prepping, you know, to, so that you can be, obviously your, your technology and your degrees and everything you've done is going to be a huge asset. You're somebody that everybody would love to have on their side and on their team. But what other, you know, precautions and, and other things do you do so that people know that, you know, Dr. Bradley is somebody that they can trust? Yeah. So that comment about the neighbors and the, you know, you, I hear that a lot about, well, I got me a mind taken care of, right? And I got guns and anybody comes try to take my stuff, I'm going to shoot them. You know, all that sounds really good until your neighbor's knocking on your door with his three-year-old girl in his arms and they're hungry, you know. You know, most people have a sense of decency where they're like, you know, I'm not going to shoot those people because they're hungry, right? It's different if people ride in and throwing bricks to your window. I, I get there's a different environment there. And so it's it's part of a responsibility to those that you care about, right? And even those that maybe you don't know, do what you can, at least in my mind. And right. and that might mean teaching them how to fish for themselves kind of thing, right? Well, hey, I don't have enough for you, but here's what I can do to help you. I do know that there, there's a way you can get some food, or I do know there's a way you can purify some water. Let me teach you how to do that. Um, and and sometimes that's enough to help people, you know, at least where they're, if they're in a really bad situation. And I think every situation is unique and different. You know, maybe like in our case, we store water. But we also have a number of different water purification methods that we could get, you know, water from our lakes or whatever we want to, or at least have some backup uh, emergency water if we needed it. Um, and so there might be ways in which we could share some of that with people where they'd have the ability to pull water. What, what I found is that most people bring different things to the table, right? And so it could be that somebody really focused heavily on personal defense, right? Maybe this guy's, you know, he's serious, hardcore, him and his buddies are six of them. And they're like, absolutely willing to protect the neighborhood, but they didn't have enough thought to think about storing any water. Right. And maybe there's a way we can work that out where you guys can keep our neighborhood safe and we'll provide some food and water. And no, the doctor's going to provide services. And in turn, we're going to, you know, the haircut is going to make sure we all stay cute. You know I mean? Everybody's got something they can bring. And you hope that, everybody's sort of committed enough that, you know, they can make some sacrifices and they can pitch in and do those things. Um, and you end up with this network. I talk about this in that handbook. It's real important if you can establish a network of people and it comes and goes, people come and go because people will have interest or they lose interest. Um, but if you get this core network of people that contribute, um, it makes you so much stronger, right? Cause I can't keep everything for everyone. And there's just no way I can do that. Right. So I keep enough for me and my family and some extras, and I keep enough um, methods by which I can help others in certain circumstances. Um, but the truth of it is, it depends on how serious the circumstances were, right? Um, if it's a two-week scenario, we're all just trying to get by, we'll make it, right? We'll all pinch, we'll all make it. If it's a two-year scenario, that might be a different thing, right? And we might have to have some different conversations, but we'd have to see when we got there, I think. And now I really think is a good time to open up that communication because, uh, you know, you can see it in all of the social media prepping pages. The numbers have grown by the hundreds, if not thousands, because now 
people have a different mentality. And, and, you know, there was always a stigma with the preppers, you know, the tinfoil hat living in the middle of nowhere. And it was kind of like, you know, he's the crazy person. But now, like we've seen in a very moderate, I know this is really extreme, everything we've had to deal with, with coronavirus and COVID-19. And, but in reality, some of the things that could happen, this was a very minor blimp. We were asked to sit at home and, you know, enjoy our Netflix and our Disney Plus and the grocery stores still function, our water still function. This was a, if you want to call it, almost like a practice run of what could really happen. But now people are, they're aware of, of you know, the shortages that could come to the shelves. I think now more so than any time in my life, and I'm sure even yours, now is time to have that open communication with your neighbors and with your friends and with your family and say, hey, if you don't want to call yourself a prepper, that's okay. But what can you do to, you know, make sure that if if we do have a second wave, if we do, if something else happens that, you know, you can participate, you can pitch in and you can take care of your own because it's going to make it easier for all of us. And if everybody just did the bare minimum of keeping a couple weeks of supplies and stuff, we wouldn't see the shortages that we've been seeing on the shelf. Right. right? No, great point. That's a great point. Yeah. And I think now's a, I think, I think now's a great time to, to open up that line of communication to everybody. Um, you know, I've had a lot of my friends that have joked, you know, with my whole prepper mentality that are now like, all right, I'm in, <laughs> you know, like, let's get me, let's get me a bug out bag and a get home safe bag and let's start there. Elton, I know you got some more stuff to add. Yeah. You know, one of the things I, I really love about, uh, I'm trying to remember which book it was, Doctor Bradley. I think it was, I think it was Handbook for Practical Disaster Prepper for the Family. I think that was the one. And you even talk about being mindful of folks with special needs, whether it's the elderly or folks with disabilities, kids, pregnant women, pets, the whole nine. Like you really covered, you know, covered that whole gamut. And I, I think it's important that we continue to have that mentality of looking out for everyone. You talked about. Um, having church groups and community groups really come together to, to kind of form preparedness networks. And I, I think that just goes right hand in hand with what we're trying to do and making sure people either in their subdivisions, their local towns or communities are really having that mindset and, and, and thinking about those things. Yeah. You know, it used to be, um, there was a, back in, back in the fifties, maybe even sixties, there was that whole idea of civil defense, right? And we don't have that. Nobody even knows what that is even anymore. But it, it, the idea was that neighborhoods, communities as a whole would have a plan by which they would survive bad events, right? And that meant food storage for the community somewhere, you know, lots of efforts being put in. And we've lost that as a nation. I don't know why we lost it. Maybe our threats felt like they were too far away now to bother with. Um, but I would love to see our country either get back to a focus on civil defense, uh, community civil defense, or at the very least, you know, do it in a sort of a localized network of our own choosing, you know, friends and neighbors and family and that sort of thing, church friends or whoever you have that might want to get together. And like I said, I think it used to be the argument was always I would bring up the idea, well, you guys, you know, thought about maybe storing a little extra food, maybe keeping this that. And it was always, ah, you know, you worry too much. You just worry too much. Look at when does anything ever happen? That's always the statement, right? Right. And now the answer is, well, when, you know, what are we living through right now? Right. And how much does it take for us to go from where we are to a situation that's really bad? We're not there yet, but we're a step closer than we were. We're walking right? the line. Yeah. We're walking the line. Yeah. 
And so maybe it's time to start thinking about it a little bit harder than you were, right? And, and I do think people are more amenable to that when they realize I can't get in the stores or they're telling me I got to lock down or whatever. They start seeing their world being changed, right? They lost their jobs. And, and they do, I think people are more amenable to the idea of the world's maybe not as safe as we thought it was. And, and you know, coming out of this pandemic, I, I think, you know, everybody thinks that we're going to wake up one day and, you know, the nation's going to have zero cases and it's going to be like, we did it. We defeated, you know, COVID-19 and let's move forward. And and that's just not reality. It's it's not going anywhere anytime fast. And you just brought up something that's really important. We are going to see a lot of companies not rebound from this. We're going to see a lot of people out of jobs. And, you know, there, there can be some social unrest after this, which which is something that as a prepper you want to be prepared for. Um, I love that you, when you were talking about the neighborhood, uh, Elton is on the board of our subdivision, and uh, I always say he's my inside man. Um, I, I'm, I'm voting for him for president, but we have a, a neighborhood park. It's nothing big, but Elton's always had this great idea of, you know, instead of having the park, let's turn it into a neighborhood garden where we can all work together and have food source. He's brought up the idea of, you know, why not just line the whole park with solar panels? So, if you know, we do have a power outage and he's got all these awesome ideas, which is why he's got my vote for president. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's awesome just to see all it takes is one person to put that, you know, put that bug out there and just say, hey, like, we have this. Let's work together. I mean, a lot of communities, they have, you know, the garden to make your entryway looks nice coming in. Let's use that for something. Let's let's plant some some edible food so that we as a community and and there's always that question of, well, you know, there's just going to be that one neighbor that takes everything. If you always look at things with the outlook of there's going to be one person that ruins it all, you're never going to take the chance and give them an opportunity to prove you wrong. And that's what I think as humans as mankind um you know we have to start taking that chance to give them an opportunity to prove us wrong and prove that we can we can work together and we can do what's right eventually and you know i i just love that elton always has these awesome ideas of you know let's get a big neighborhood garden let's get a big neighborhood solar panel area and all of these ideas you know just they're always turning with him me and him message each other literally 20 times a day uh with just ideas and you know especially during this uh covid pandemic you know we've we've uh been social distancing that's why our podcast is you know going with the zoom and everything and um you know we're so excited to get back in studio and just really just build our network and and get everybody involved and you know hold maybe neighborhood meetings and just get that flow of communication going um so outside of your technology and everything what would you say is your strongest point for prepping outside of obviously you can build faraday cages your home's probably protected what do you think your strongest your next strongest strength um, is i don't know exactly i take a fairly holistic view of it all kind of a whole picture of preparedness i love that and i when i wrote the handbook i, I tried not it's real easy to get caught up in one thing and there's usually two camps there's the food people and there's the gun people right i mean that, that's what i found and i didn't want to get in either one there's the old saying uh you know you can't fight off people with canned peaches but you can't eat your bullets right and so there's an importance to both right and of course there are many other other types of preparations too food and shelter and electricity and all those other things 
And so what I tried to do was, was sort of take a whole picture look at it and say, you know, I'm going to create a plan. And I talked about this in the handbook, a plan that addresses each of the needs of a person. Right. And and based on what you're worried about, like we live over in Virginia near the coast. Right. So we're worried about hurricanes. We've been hit by a couple of hurricanes since I've lived here. And that has a specific set of preparations to do right. People who live other places might worry about tornadoes like we lived in Alabama. Tornadoes were pretty common and, and, and so forth. Right. Uh, and then there's, of course, national threats that would affect all of us. And so what I do is I, I have tried to set in place preparations that address my needs for the threats that I think are real to me. So I, we keep food, like most everybody that's in the preparedness world, we keep food enough for our family. And I just as my thing is, I always tell people, keep at least 30 days of food on hand. I get a lot of flack for that. 30 days, that's not nearly enough food. You need 90 days or a, or a year's or whatever. And that's fine. You want to keep a year's worth of food? Keep a year's worth of food. I'm just saying as a minimum, if you have 30 days of food that your family will eat, I'm not talking about MREs. I'm not talking about things they've never eaten before. Regular food that they can eat, you can weather almost any event, right? Not any event, but almost any event. Hurricanes, check. Any weather-related event. I mean, those things, you can go down the list. And so I say keep at least 30 days of food. Have some backup water and a way of filtering water. And, you know, I sort of go through these basic preparations that get you through most things. And then, and then I say, all right, well, now that you've got the sort of covered the waterfront of what you might actually see happen, what about if something really unusual happened that was really dangerous to you? Um, like an EMP is a good example. Or let's say a major pandemic, which is what we're going through now. It's not common these happen, right? but it's not impossible to happen, right? And so what would you do then? A pandemic, well, it could affect you for a couple of years, right? So what are you gonna do for a couple of years when things are being disturbed, your normal processes are disturbed? You don't have a job, you can't get enough money, you're, you know, and so you have to have some safety nets in place. And so I try and go through those sort of worst case scenarios and think of additional preparations. Um, and in, in our case, I don't know that we're super over-prepared in any one area. Um, we're just sort of broadly prepared. You know, we have, if there's a, a nuclear threat, we have a way to detect radiation. We have, and we have potassium iodide to take. And we have, you know, things like that, that you just sort of think across the waterfront of, do we have a way to get out of here? Is there a place where we could go and be safe? Yeah, okay, I've thought that through. Um, you know, that kind of a thing, as right. opposed to, I'm going to have 36 AR-15s and 14,000 rounds and, you know, as one extreme. Now, don't get me wrong. I love AR-15s. Right? I got them. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, I watched your video. Yeah. You know, I mean, and on the other side, I could have a year's worth of food and all that. But, you know, if I have to leave my house, I can't take that year's worth of food with me, right? Mike could take a couple of weeks. And so I have to think about that, too, you know, kind of the balanced approach. That's just my own thinking. That's great. And that we, we, we take the same approach. We're, we're both trying to be holistic and any weaknesses I have, Bobby's trying to cover those and, and vice versa. Um, I think one of the, the coolest things you talk about in, in one of your books is, uh, I think you call it the five horsemen of death. <laughs> You're talking about the main, you know, tsunamis, hurricanes, uh, earthquakes, the, the big ones, right? But yeah, we, we have to, pre you know, prepare for all these other things. And you talk about the, the common three type. You talked before about the guns and butter people, but also this, you got the stockpiler, the MacGyver person, and the survivalist. And we're really trying to balance those things. I think for our, for our audience, we want everyone to be balanced and think about all those, those different pieces. And uh, one of the things I want to harken back to really quickly, um, you were 
when you were talking about those surges, because one of my biggest focuses is continuity of technology. I want to be able to provide that for Bobby. Bobby's food prep is better than mine. If he has to you know, haul his freezer over here and I still have power, I definitely want to be able to do that. So on top of the Fairites, the uh, whole home surge, I have Fairites on every single electronic device in my home. Like every cable has a Fairite, first of all. Um, but what are your thoughts and feelings about power conditioners and uh, uninterruptible power supplies? Because I think I have UPSs on several of my main components that I want to keep going. Yeah, so I studied those, um, not extensively, but some in my lab. I must have been when I was writing the EMP book. And so okay. we took, you know, there were a couple different kinds. It was the double UPS one, and it was sort of a standard UPS. And we measured what the, essentially what we did is we put a disturbance on the input side, and we looked at the output side and said, what's the disturbance on the output side? And ended up, they did a great job of reducing disturbance. They, they could take it down, if I remember, by around 50 dB, which is 99.7%. So you could put a pretty big pulse on the front end and you got a very tiny pulse on the output side. And so I think they're, yeah, they're very effective at removing um, surges that come in on the power lines. I think they're very effective at that. Would they be damaged by the EMP if you didn't have other preparations? Probably, they'd probably get damaged from the current loads that came in, but they might still save everything downstream, which is very important. Nice, thank you. It gives me a little bit of a uh, peace of mind <laughs> to know that I have all those contingencies in place. Yeah, he's he's buying them. He he keeps messaging me and he's like, "All right, I made another purchase," and I'm like, "Bro, I'm gonna come over there and take your credit card away because you know he's he I, right now it's just uh, we got too much free time on our hands. That's all it is, and we just keep looking and um you know me and him keep going back and forth. You know, I I love working as a team and having somebody that I can rely on and. And we keep going back and forth on buying, you know, uh, like a, a freeze dryer so we can freeze dry our own food and stuff. And it's like you look at the price tags of some of these purchases, you know, and, and obviously he made a huge purchase with the solar panels. He's got the generator on his house. Now he's filtering his own water. And, you know, I'm sitting over here with stockpiles of egg noodles and I'm like, OK, uh, you know, I got to get on his level. And then he's sitting over there going man, you know, Bobby's got more food preps than me. I got to get on his level. So it really is, like he said, is is building that neighborhood prepping mentality where I'm not going to get everything done. I'm never going to wake up and just say, you know, all right, I'm done prepping. You know, I'm all done. You're never going to be done. And so, you know, when you have that mentality that, hey, you know, me, we always say, you know, I got your six. Anything that he has, you know, I know that is what's his is mine, what's mine is his. So it really does help. And that's the one thing that we just keep preaching to everybody is everybody always asks when, when they find out I'm a prepper, okay, you know, what should I do first? What's, what's your number one most important thing to prep? I always tell them it's people. People are the most important thing to prep. You know, first of all, I don't want to live in a world without people. Like if I woke up one day and I was alone in this world, you know, I would be like, this is miserable. Like, you know, I, that's not what I want. And so the companionship and there's just, like you said, talking to doctors and nurses and dentists and, and building that network so you, that you have access to all of the things that we still have, you know, is, is great. And, uh, Elton, anything My else? is a big time prepper too, by the way. Really? Oh, awesome. Every time awesome. I go see him. He's like, oh, Art, you got to tell me some stories. And he tells me about it. he's living out in the farm. They got their own, you know, chickens and, and food and his kids are, 
you know, all learning to shoot out at their little range at their, you know, on their property. And he's big time into that preparedness for which is pretty cool. You know, right. Really cool. That is actually, that's really awesome. You know, and, and when you look inside your typical subdivision and neighborhood and community, you, you are, you're going to find people of every kind of, you know, career, every kind. I mean, there's, there's, going to be never ending things that you can learn from people. I know, I know I've learned more sitting down here, just listening to you talk. My, I got, I mean, I got a page just filled of notes and, you know, just listening to you. And, and again, every time me and Elton talk, it's like, you know, it gets the gear and I'm always just, I'm striving for that knowledge. I, I just want to thank you so much. Everything you said, I, I hope everybody comes out of this, you know, just really as excited as we are right now. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and uh, we really appreciate the time you spent with us. We're coming up on the hour, so we definitely want to be uh, respectful of your time. Are there any other final thoughts or things that you want to uh, share with uh, with us, Dr. Bradley? Well, you know, I usually leave people with the idea that, um, you know, being better prepared is, yeah, it's a responsibility to you and your family, right? You do it out of love, right? You don't do it out of fear. A lot of people mistake that, and they... And that's one reason why people prepare in the wrong ways, right? They start being driven by fear and they make a, a series of bad decisions and they usually regret them later. So I say, try and be driven by the right thing, right? Look around the people you care about. Those are what you're preparing for is to try and keep them safe, right? And uh, so I just, I'd leave people with that message is it really try and do it out of love. Don't do it out of fear. And you'll probably end up at the right spot with it. And that's actually our motto here. Prepare for the worst while hoping for the best. You know, and that that's huge, and that's something that we always try to preach. Um, guys, Dr. Arthur Bradley, thank you so much. Uh, DisasterPrepare.com, we're going to have everything linked to your page. You, you have endless, uh, I know there's 15 books for sale on there. I'm sure you have more. I'm sure you're working on more currently. Um, Disaster Prepare on YouTube, um, you know, I don't even know. I didn't even get through it all. How many videos do you have up? Do you even I know? I don't know. Yeah. I just do videos when I find something interesting to investigate. I do videos to share that knowledge with others for the most part. And what's awesome is you have extensive ones on, you know, building, you know, EMPs and stuff. But I, I watched one today that was very simple on how to clean your mask. You know, so you're sharing that knowledge. Um, I think everybody should look into that disaster prepper on YouTube. Again, disasterprepare.com. Everything will be linked. Dr. Bradley, I, I can't thank you enough. It means a lot to me. I know Elton's, <laughs> he, he's super excited. He was the one that, you know, made this happen by reaching out to you. So thank you so much for giving us your time. Elton, your thing. All right, everyone, you've been listening to and watching Neighborhood Preppers with our special guest, Dr. Arthur Bradley. I'm Alton James, joined by the man himself, Mr. Bobby Riggs Jr. Thanks for being here. You guys take care. Later, guys. See ya. Take it easy. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys.